Before I start this week's podcast, just a quick thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the podcast image. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. Actually, it's been quite a varied week this week. Not a huge amount of news, but what has come out is interesting. As I predicted a week or so ago, the insolvency service has been after the COVID-19 bounce-back loan scammers hard again. There's more news on actions by the Gambling Commission to keep its house in order. Some interesting case law from the Supreme Court on proportionality in confiscation proceedings and we'll have a bit of a look ahead to a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast on the cybersecurity warning from the Department for Culture, Media and Sport in the UK. Let's get on with it. We start where we've started for, seems like forever, with sanctions regimes. I've been saying for a while now that the news on sanctions following the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been drying up. It's gone from a deluge to a reasonable flow, and now it's barely even a trickle. So what has happened this week? Well, there is a little bit. First of all, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, OFSI, has made available its webinar on financial sanctions reporting obligations. It covers introduction to OFSI, financial sanctions, what are the reporting obligations, who are relevant firms, what information should be reported, how to report to OFSI, and there is a Q&A. Now, I'd imagine a number of the issues covered were already familiar to relevant firms, but if you're looking for an introduction to the area, I can happily recommend it. Yes, it's a bit death by PowerPoint at times, but let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But it's only 17 minutes of your life, and then you can get back to videos of Ricky Gervais corpsing in outtakes of Afterlife on YouTube. Beyond that, OFSI has been uh, updating a general license which it issued in July this year, allowing only individuals or entities designated under the UK sanctions regime to make payments to UK insurers for insurance premiums and broker commissions relating to the provision of building and engineering insurance uh, covering UK properties. The license also permits UK insurers to make payments to UK designated persons uh, as a due as a result of a successful claim made against an insurance policy provided by the UK insurer or refunds due as a result of any overpayments made pursuant to the license. Well, this week, as I've said, it's been amended, it's been updated to include terrorism insurance, which is insurance covering the cost of repairing damage to the structure of a property as a result of an act of terrorism, uh, property owner's liability insurance, which is insurance covering claims made against landlords and property owners in respect of their legal liability for personal injury or property damage suffered by third parties and arising from the policyholder's ownership of the property. And finally, claims preparation costs insurance, which is insurance covering the cost of appointing a professional claims handler to deal with any claims made against an insurance policy permitted under the licence. The licence took effect on the 22nd of July 2022 and is of indefinite duration. In addition, OFSI has issued a general licence allowing payments to a sanctioned bank or any subsidiary for the purpose of making energy available for use in Mongolia. The sanctioned banks are 
Credit Bank of Moscow, Gazprom Bank, Spurbank, and Rosbank PJSC. That's it. For sanctions this week, let's turn our attention now to money laundering. Some interesting pickings this week in terms of money laundering news, and certainly one thing worth flagging is more heavy work being done by the Gambling Commission to see that its house is in order. But before that, the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the JMLSG, has issued revisions to its money laundering guidance as it relates to the motor finance sector. The changes principally concern upping their game around customer due diligence. The changes have been submitted to the responsible minister for approval. Over in Jersey, the Jersey Financial Services Commission has been mildly active uh, this week. First, they've been alerting non-profit organisations perceived as presenting a higher risk to terrorist financing abuse following the national risk assessment which they carried out. Those which fall into this category will be subject to regulatory supervision from the 1st of January 2023. The Financial Services Commission has also issued a fine of £498,000 to a Lloyds Bank subsidiary operating in Jersey for its failure to ensure that the correspondent banking relationship was properly identified and risks potentially present in correspondent banking relationships adequately considered and mitigated over a protracted period of time. The failure properly to identify the relationship at an earlier stage to maintain adequate systems and controls for correspondent banking to mitigate any increased financial crime risk arising from that relationship and the failure to bring identified deficiencies to the attention of the Jersey Financial Services Commission more promptly and completely was what led to the fine. And finally on money laundering this week, the Gambling Commission, which has been very active in recent weeks, as I've reported in uh, the last two or three editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, it's issued yet another fine this week for compliance failings in a gambling, uh, gambling firm's anti-money laundering systems and controls. Entang Group uh, will pay 14 million euros for failures at its online business, LC International Limited, which runs 13 websites, notable among which is ladbrooks.com, coral.co.uk and foxybingo.com. It'll also pay £3 million for failures at its Ladbrokes Betting and Gaming Limited operation, which is the high street version. It runs 2,746 gambling premises across Britain. While part of the fine related to its social responsibility obligations, which again has been ratcheted up a lot this week in the regulatory context, a significant element, as I've indicated, related to its anti-money laundering failings. Specifically in relation to those failings, the press release issued by the Gambling Commission highlighted the following, that it failed to conduct an adequate risk assessment of the risks of their online business being used for money laundering and terrorist financing, it allowed online customers to deposit large amounts without carrying out sufficient source of funds checks. In fact, one customer was allowed to deposit £742,000 in 14 months without appropriate source of funds checks. And another, who was known to live in social housing, was allowed to deposit £186,000 in six months without sufficient source of funds checks. In addition, it failed to conduct enhanced customer due diligence checks soon enough. 
One online customer was allowed to deposit over £520,000 between December 2019 and October 2020 before the operator closed the account due to the customer failing to supply source of funds evidence. It also placed excessive reliance on open source information. One online customer was allowed to deposit £140,000 between December 2019 and October 2020, but prior to a source of funds check in August 2020, the operator based its knowledge of the customer's source of wealth on open source searches. Google is your friend, or indeed, in this case, Google is not your friend. And finally, it allowed customers to stake large amounts of money without having been monitored or scrutinized. One betting shop customer was allowed to stake a total of £168,000 on shop terminals over eight months before the operator carried out due diligence checks. The fines, which, as I indicated, total around £17 million, are a strong reminder that the Gambling Commission is willing to take all the necessary steps to ensure that those subject to its scrutiny are undertaking the necessary checks to keep the activity that they undertake on the right side of the law. Now, away from money laundering, we turn attention to fraud. A recurring theme in the fraud stories that I've looked at over the last couple of months in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast has been the scale of fraud in the COVID-19 loan, bounce back loan scheme. But there are other aspects of COVID fraud which have been going on. But particularly in recent weeks, I've looked at the scale of fraud in specifically in the COVID-19 bounce back loan scheme. And I predicted a couple of weeks ago that the insolvency service, which has been active in holding fraudsters to account in this area, will be making further announcements. And actually, so it is this week. I must be Nostradamus or something. First, a director of four construction companies claimed £200,000 under the scheme, um, to which he had no entitlement. One of the companies was dormant, and the other three companies had a turnover which amounted to no more than £5,000 in the most um, well-run of those companies. Uh, He was banned as a director for 11 years. And further, a speciality balloons and gifts retailer was awarded £45,000 when the business turnover was no more than £1,300, which didn't even entitle that company to the minimum payment of £2,000. The disqualification is for nine years. Now, this is going to keep happening, and the government, as the government, I suppose, seeks to uh, take the scale of the bounce-back loan fraudsters to task and seeks to recover the fraudulently obtained funds. Now, a little bit on market abuse before we have a look at that Supreme Court case this week. Um, The Financial Conduct Authority has announced a fine of £12.5 million for Citigroup Global Markets Limited for failure properly to implement the Market Abuse Regulation, or MAR as it's known, and its trade surveillance requirements as they relate to the detection of market abuse. The Financial Conduct Authority contended that the failure to implement meant Citigroup Global uh, Markets could not effectively monitor its trading activities for certain types of insider dealing and market manipulation. This is a quote from the uh, FCA's statement. It took 18 months 
to identify and assess the specific market abuse risks its business may have been exposed to and which it needed to detect. Citigroup Global Markets' flawed implementation resulted in significant gaps in its arrangements, systems and procedures for additional trade surveillance. Now, confiscation hearings this week. Final story we'll look at this week before we sign off. It's an extraordinary story, this one. The facts are certainly <laughs> really compelling. Um, the UK Supreme Court, which is the highest court in uh, the United Kingdom for certain appeals, uh, forms the basis of a decision on confiscation and proportionality this week. The case is uh, the Crown against Andrews and relates to a fraudulently obtained employment by Andrews which he obtained by amplifying the quality of his CV. As the judgment of the Supreme Court provides at paragraph 4 with a rather droll conclusion, as you'll see in a moment, John Andrews claimed to have obtained a first degree from Bristol University in Social Policy and Politics and an MPhil in Poverty and Social Justice from the same university. He claimed to have an MBA from Edinburgh University in Management Science and to be in the course of studying for a PhD in Ethics and Management at Plymouth University. Under the heading of professional qualifications, he claimed to have an advanced diploma in Management Accounting uh, with SEMA. None of this was true. <laughs> but extraordinarily, he got the job that he applied for. Now, he, he, of course, he was found out and he was charged with three counts to which he pleaded guilty. One was under the Theft Act and there were two counts under the Fraud Act 2006. He was sentenced to two years imprisonment and then made the subject of confiscation proceedings. So the proceeds of his crime would be confiscated, that is, taken from him, at which an order in the sum of £96,000 was made against him. This was calculated to be around... 15% of his earnings during the decade or so that he was working uh, in the fraudulently obtained employment. Now, the Supreme Court answers points of law and the certified point of law for this appeal was as follows. Where a defendant obtains remuneration as a result of or in connection with an offence of fraud based upon the obtaining of employment by false representations or non-disclosure, in what circumstances, if any, will a confiscation order based on the wages earned be disproportionate within the terms of Section 6, Subsection 5 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, or contrary to Article 1, Protocol 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which I believe is the right to respect for private property. Now, Section 6.5 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 provides that if the court has decided that the defendant benefited from the relevant wrongful uh, wrongdoing or conduct, then it must make a confiscation order requiring the defendant to pay the recoverable amount of that benefit, but that the requirement to make a confiscation order applies, quotes, only if or to the extent that it would, be it would not be disproportionate to require the defendant to pay the recoverable amount. Therefore, the appeal was really concerned with the meaning of disproportionate in the context of section 6, subsection 5. The appeal court, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, 
interpreted the law in what might almost be regarded as a kind of halfway house kind of way. At paragraph 45, it said as follows. In our view, where one is considering proportionality, the relevant benefit from the fraud that it is proportionate to disgorge, disgorge simply means to take away, is not the full net earnings, but rather the difference between the higher earnings that Mr Andrews has obtained and the lower earnings that he would have obtained had he not used fraud and hence had not been offered the particular job. This is to take away the profit made by the fraud. This approach, the Supreme Court said, provides a principled middle way or halfway house between the take all or take nothing approaches to confiscation in CV fraud cases. It would, the Supreme Court said, normally be disproportionate to take away all of the net earnings made. Interesting case, that one. Have a look at it in a bit more depth, if you feel so inclined. Now, before I sign off, just a flag that I plan to look at the recently published survey on cybersecurity breaches published by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, which was published this week. Now, this was part of a, a wider bit of research that I'm undertaking into liability for losses consequent upon cyber breaches. So look out for that this week. Not sure when, but I suspect Friday. Don't you just love it when people are vague? That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me on Friday for the special and then all again on Sunday for the usual weekly roundup of all things financial crime. Have a cracking financial crime-free week, everyone. 